In the name of our loving, liberating, and life-giving God, amen. Please be seated. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Now, this is a good example of where many biblical literalists quickly resort to interpreting the Bible metaphorically or otherwise rationalize away its literal meaning or want to spiritualize it rather than make it concrete and refer to people's actual economic reality. And on the other hand, many of Many who otherwise abhor the idea of biblical literalism can get very literal when it comes to talking about Jesus' preferential option for the poor and his opposition to greed and the economic systems that allow some to thrive while others suffer. Very convenient is it not to pick which things in Scripture we will take literally and which we will not. And yes, particularly in our struggles around wealth and poverty, we can very quickly put ourselves in a dangerous set of very small boxes, often defined more by our place in society or a set of social and political ideals and commitments rather than by a vision of the world as it was meant to be. So how do we speak to one another about these things, about the meaning we find in what we hear Jesus say in today's gospel, for example. How do we find and have meaningful and helpful conversations about things that bear on our economic situation, whether we are rich or poor or somewhere in between? And what, if any, meaning do these religious texts have for us, rich and poor, liberal and conservative, religious and secular? And how do we find the language we can all speak together and in which we find meaning? Perhaps we should recognize that this is a tension that existed within the early church out of which our Gospels arose and the varying ways that they themselves understood the teachings of Jesus. It is true that while Luke is pretty specific about the poor and the rich being either blessed or having woes pronounced upon them, Matthew's account of these same teachings toned things down by indicating these as spiritual qualities rather than socioeconomic states. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Matthew says. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Some biblical scholars would suggest that this is a good reason to believe that Luke's version, being the harder of the two to hear and to put into practice, is actually more likely to be the original version. I think it's also helpful to see that Luke's version of the Beatitudes pairs with that story from the very first chapter of Luke, where we see Mary's ecstatic prayer of hope and change and Yes, revolution, the Magnificat, which we find in the first chapter of Luke and which Jesus' words here seem to be reflecting in many ways. Remember what she said when she visited with her cousin Elizabeth, who recognized that she was going to bear the Messiah. Mary broke forth with words that could only be considered, yes, revolutionary. My soul 
magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich, sent the rich away empty. Mary's words were nothing less than a vision of a new reality, a world set right where all have what they need. And those whose pride and privilege have caused them to exercise power over others and who have hoarded what they have at the expense of others will have a day of reckoning when all is set right. Now, they are not necessarily a blank condemnation of the rich, but on all those who, as it says in the Magnificat, do not fear God, or who through their pride believe themselves to be entitled to what they have, regardless of those left out of having even their most basic needs met. Jesus' own blessing on the poor and the woes he pronounces on the rich seem like the words of a child that was raised with such a mother's words in his ear. Many today, of course, will want to frame the conversation about wealth and how we get it, how much of it we get to keep, the role of taxation in mitigating inequality in terms of modern-day categories and political ideologies. Was Jesus a capitalist or a socialist, we ask? Our categories may be totally or at least mostly irrelevant, fraught as they are with the baggage of history and contemporary realities. What Jesus and his mother cared about was basic fairness. Do people have what they need? And if they don't, then there's something out of balance. And the powers of this world need to be rebalanced to conform with God's vision for all of humanity. In his book titled, God Has a Dream, a Vision of Hope of Our Time, Desmond Tutu writes these words. He says, I have a dream, God says. Please help me to realize it. It is a dream of a world whose ugliness and squalor and poverty, its war and hostility, its greed and harsh competitiveness, its alienation and disharmony are changed into their glorious counterparts. When there will be more laughter, joy, and peace, where there will be justice and goodness and compassion and love and caring and sharing. I have a dream that swords will be beaten into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks, that my children will know that they are members of one family, the human family, God's family, my family. The dream that Bishop Tutu seems to be talking about also seems to be slipping away for too many people in our world. The hope that our children might be better off than we are no longer seems realistic to many. The promise of a secure, 
retirement is beyond the hopes and expectations of a growing segment of our society. The idea that young people should not have to be buried in debt to get an education or that health care should be enjoyed by all are somehow lost in a culture that is steeped in individualism and the myth of standing on our own two feet. Even as new tax laws tip the balance further in favor of those who need it the least. New voices in Congress these last few weeks are forcing the kind of conversation about rising inequality and the remedies for it that we have not had in a very long time and that we desperately need to have. It's an important conversation to engage in with one another and one that needs new ideas and new voices in it. We should be welcoming those voices. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus, our question should not be about the labels they wear or the parties they identify with, but should be how and whether they align with the vision that Jesus set forth of a world where all have their needs met and where we all are, as Desmond Tutu says, members of one family. In the meantime, as we work toward the goal of that beloved community and in the spirit of loving our neighbors as ourselves, it is so absolutely important to guard ourselves from the extremes of labeling one another as good or evil, enlightened or ignorant, honest or hypocritical, Christ-like or heathen. Seldom is it true that any of us is all of one or the other. More often we are each some combination of our best selves and the shadow that always lurks within us. Elie Wiesel is a writer and a Holocaust survivor, and in his novel titled The Town Beyond the Wall, the character Pedro has this to say. He says, deep down, man is not only executioner, not only victim, not only spectator. He is all three at once. It is entirely possible for us to be both good-hearted and ill-informed, knowledgeable and greedy, compassionate and dull. It's also true that we can be loving one moment and very selfish the next. There are many layers of complexity within each and every one of us, and in some sense, Jesus' blessing of the poor and his admonitions to the rich are all spoken into the battle that rages right within each and every human heart. At the heart of our struggle to find justice for rich and poor, hungry and full, those who weep and those who laugh, and to create the beloved community where we all have what we need and no one is left out, is what Valerie Coor calls revolutionary love. And that the heart of revolutionary love is the ability to look at the other, the stranger, someone on the other side of an issue or a division in our society, or at the other end of the socioeconomic spectrum, and see not a stranger or one with whom I am better off without, but a brother or a sister, an aunt or an uncle. Revolutionary love is a commitment to, as Valerie Carr says, see no stranger, but rather to see those who are 
a part of me that I do not yet know. It's Jesus' call to self-transcending love, the call to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. And the reasons he wants that for us is that that is the very nature of God in whose image we are created because only there can we truly be the people that we were made to be. The problems of economic inequality and injustice will not finally be solved until we understand not only our need of one another, but also that our own truest selves are defined by the love that we have for each other, hard as that can be. And that, yes, love often involves great sacrifice. Jesus' pronouncement of woe on those who are rich is not so much a condemnation or a curse as it is an expression of pity. Woe to the rich, for they've received their consolation. He is saying here, woe to those who do not recognize their need of God, of love, of self-giving love, because they seem to have gotten all they need without it. How tragic that they have missed the point of their existence and the fulfillment of their purpose as people made in the image of God. But blessed are the poor, for theirs already is the kingdom of God. They know their need of God, of love, which calls us all to live with the understanding that our lives depend on more than self alone and are meaningless without mutual self-giving love. This is the revolution that we need, and it is a revolution of love. Amen.